Coherence or Convenience South Africa's Foreign Policy and the Invasion of Ukraine South Africa's refusal to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been widely criticized at home and abroad. The government argues that the situation should be addressed through mediation and negotiation and that condemning Russia would be one-sided and serve no purpose. Does this stance offer a viable avenue for resolving the conflict or is it merely a consequence of the governing party's historical loyalty to the former Soviet Union and its lingering antipathy to the West? Advocate Mike Pothier is in discussion with Professor Peter Vale, a senior fellow at the Public Affairs Research Institute and Emeritus Professor of Politics at Rhodes University, and Reverend Edwin Harrison, a Development Officer at the Desmond and Nia Tutu Legacy Foundation. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mike Pothier. I'm the Program Manager for the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office. Welcome to our event this afternoon where we look at South Africa's foreign policy. Is it a matter of coherence or a matter of convenience? Shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February, our Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor issued a statement calling on Russia to withdraw its troops. But not long after that, our government started to row back on the issue. And since then, President Ramaphosa and other government spokespeople have been pursuing a line that calls for negotiation and mediation and appears to place equal responsibility on both sides. So what is our foreign policy in the context of the invasion of Ukraine? Are we simply uh, taking sides with our friend in BRICS? Do we misunderstand the situation? Or do we actually have a well thought out coherent foreign policy, which perhaps sets us apart from many other countries in the world? To help us think through these issues, we have two speakers with us today. Firstly, Professor Peter Vale, very well known political scientist and analyst of many years standing in South Africa, currently a senior research fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Scholarship at the University of Pretoria and formerly the Nelson Mandela Professor of Politics at Rhodes University. Professor Vale also spent many years at the South African Institute for International Affairs. So he is really a great foreign policy expert. And then we have Reverend Edwin Arison, who's the Development Officer of the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation. The foundation issued a very powerful statement also soon after the Russian invasion. Calling for negotiations, yes, but also unequivocally calling on Russia to withdraw its troops and asking the South African government to join countries like Ghana and Kenya in condemning the Russian action. So we've asked Edwin to take us through that and to give us the perspective from within South African civil society. Without any further ado, then I'm going to hand over to our first speaker, Professor Peter Vale. Peter, please go ahead. Thanks very much, Mike uh, Fundis. Nice to see you after all these years, a <laughs> lifetime. Thank you. I often see uh, sportsmen who come out of retirement and give the most banal excuses for coming out of retirement when we know that what is probably dangled in front of them is a huge sponsorship or a check or, a, or an extension of their career. 
Well, to be frank, there are only two things that would have, would have got me out of retirement. To be invited by a Catholic NGO, <laughs> uh, paid an in, Catholic NGO has played an enormous part in my life, although I'm not a Catholic. And the second is anybody or any person associated with the life and work of the astonishing Desmond Tutu. So I'm out of retirement, and if people want to know, this is the reason why. So what I want to do in about 25 minutes or 20 minutes is clear some intellectual ground, talk a little about the roots of South African foreign policy, say a little about its golden age, try to say something about how it lost its footing, and then to answer with Lenin's famous phrase, what is to be done? Mm. And there's no point in having a conversation like this unless one is prepared to be provocative. So let me start with clearing some ground. Firstly, Putin and, Russian, Putin and Russia have shown to be destructive, not only historically, but in more recent times. What we're seeing is Kiev, in Kiev is no different from the bombing of uh, Aleppo. Mm. Secondly, in my view, Russia will win this war, but will lose the peace. Thirdly, what we're seeing is a massive reorganization of global geometry. It will not be a return to a Cold War, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but, it would, but the geometry of the planet will go through a fundamental change. And in that going through the change, we'll miss some important tricks that we have to look towards over the longer term. We don't have the vocabulary to say what will happen. And I think part of the, the kind of narrative that's going around this panoply, this explosion of uh, 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 discussion about the war, what will happen, won't happen, is a search for a vocabulary to say what will happen. I don't think we have the vocabulary yet. One of my great intellectual and political worries is that the English language is a language of power and control. The English language will not give us the space to seek the peace which is necessary. Then I want to say two things about what we're looking at uh, in a more uh, focused term. Sovereignty, conversations about sovereignty are always very, very complex. Uh, if you want to understand Lesotho, uh, if you understand Lesotho in South Africa or Eswatini in South Africa, that's the best analogy you can have for the Ukraine and Russia, this intermingling of people in liminal spaces on national borders. The system of states that we claim to have in the world is really a system of uh, organized hypocrisy. And unless you're prepared to live with organized hypocrisy and to study organized hypocrisy, you should be uh, studying something else. So there are just a bunch, uh, seven or so, uh, issues of clearing ground. What about the roots of South African foreign policy? The formation of the Union of South Africa was only secondarily a, national, a nationalist project. It was really about preserving Britain's presence in the world and across the world. The Union, the Republic, and the New South Africa were a Western, were a Western Reed White uh, 
expressions of how the world should be organized. Foreign policy aims to protect, in my view, South African foreign policy aims to protect, in my view, Western capitalist interests. This is a racially biased understanding of what matters. And the country has only had one moment of real agency in its foreign policy, only one moment of real agency in its foreign policy. That's when it had the seven and a half atom bombs. That was the only moment when it had real agency. Otherwise, South Africa is an object in foreign policy. It's not a, it has no agency when you come to think of it. And if you think I'm joking about that, as we've been thinking about doing this study, I've been looking at um, some books, some old books on South African foreign policy. And it seems to me that what we're going through, this lack of agency we find in historical texts on South African foreign policy. We are not a player of any significance in, in the world. And I'll come to the question of mediation in a second. South Africa is a remote vassal of a world structured to protect not ideas, but interests. And I think that comes to the, to the nub of what we're talking about. Human rights is an, is an idea, not an ideology. And South African foreign policy is essentially organized, in my view, around, ideo uh, around ideology. Now, having said that, I'm going to say something which is really provocative. No single moment, South Africa had a golden age in its foreign policy, and that, aid, that golden age was really around the issue of human rights. Let me say why I call it a golden age. It's a golden age because it was not a single moment, but a gradual evolutionary process of drawing this idea of foreign policy to the center of our national debate, as, as the idea of human rights to the center of our national debate. What is human rights? Well, at a time when Boris Johnson is trying to claim Winston Churchill as his hero, one might remember Churchill's famous uh, grandiose in typical Churchill's, Churchill fashion, his grandiose expression of human rights as the enthron enthronement of the rights of man, which is the central idea of human rights. It begins, of course, with the French Revolution but is taken up by revolution, by, by religious groups. And then in this particular case, in this event today, by NGOs associated with religious groups. Um, and it's always associated in some form or another with revolutionary movements. And in South Africa, the enthronement of the rights of man has been associated in particular way with the Russian revolution. It has certain spin-offs. It has a great spin-off in the, the love affair between South Africa and Cuba, which is often difficult to understand unless you're prepared to think of the war in Angola and the provision of uh, uh, medical supplies by South Africa to Cuba and the exchange of doctors. It travels to South Africa. The Russian Revolution travels to South Africa through the ANC and SACP. And this is part of what Mike mentioned, this association, this linkage very deep inside the history of the liberation movement. But it's also associated with decolonization. And part of what South Africa continues to seek in its 
attempt to change the structure of the world, I think, is to advance a decolonization debate. And there are threads of that decolonization debate all over our foreign policy in different ways. But it's also associated with, uh, with, uh, with South Africa's foreign policy. From the 1950s onwards, there becomes a deep bifurcation in South African foreign policy. The National Party, who really has very little agency in its foreign policy, becomes the servant of the West. The ANC, the PAC, and the liberation movements become what they term the servants of the people. And so this deep bifurcation happens between these two foreign policies. And I think what we're seeing now is the continuation of that bifurcation of that foreign policy. People associated sentimentally in deep cultural settings. Part of what we're seeing or part of what we're experiencing now is a cultural clash between uh, an association and understanding of Russia in a particular way in South Africa's psyche and an understanding of the West in South Africa's psyche. That's partly what we're going through. I believe, and this is the first, uh, first time that I've actually expressed it, though I've been thinking it for a while, that international pressure against South Africa narrows the gap between those two positions. And South Africa finally begins to accept its golden age that, in a sense, human rights matters to it when the process of negotiation begins. I've just done a chapter for an Oxford book on the idea of peaceful change in South Africa. What is the idea of peaceful change in South Africa? And this is an attempt to look at negotiation as a way of drawing South Africans together. Peaceful change was a forerunner. Uh, uh, negotiation was a forerunner for peaceful change. We had to learn the idea of negotiation in very painful experiences. A lost, the National Party lost the war in Angola. I know that's a, that's a controversial statement. It lost the Battle of Quito Conavale. These were desperate, desperate things for people inside the National Party. But we were drawn together. This is the point I want to make. We were drawn together, it seems to me, by the idea of negotiation. And that negotiation drew us both together under the banner of human rights. Now, that may seem a strange thing to say, except if you recall, and I remembered the other night and looked for it in this extraordinary book written on Pip Boerter, that in 1970, his first speech in Parliament, he talked about human rights. Now, it's astonishing to think about it, because the struggle was always for human rights or mainly came to be associated with the struggle for human rights. The archbishop was for human rights. But the, the idea, if we think about it now, that the archbishop and, uh, and Puck in 1970s were even thinking about the same common thing of human rights, it's a kind of mind-boggling thing. And that's why we need, I think, a revisionist understanding of South African foreign policy, a revisionist understanding of who we are. So uh, we're confronted now with this understanding that we come from two traditions. We were forced apart from each other. We have a common understanding of one thing, negotiation. 
And yet we haven't found a way to express that in our foreign policy. And so we return to a very old question in South African foreign policy studies, where in the world is South Africa? And I think that the struggle that we are having inside our foreign policy at an existential level is a struggle of identity of who we are as a people, uh, where we belong, uh, what kind of values draw us together. And ironically, this idea of negotiation draws us together. And I think that's something that we have to deal with. So let me now make uh, a conclusion. And... Uh, uh, make some provocative statements in the spirit of Lenin, what's to be done. The first is, I think we have to have a discussion about what we stand for. And that discussion is not independent of who we are, not independent of our identity. These two things are joined together. We have to go back and examine negotiation, what brought us together in the context of our negotiation, these common bonds that draw us together. I think, thirdly, we have to think very deeply about, and this is how it lost its footing, we have to think very deeply the golden age lost its footing because the reforms at the end of the Cold War were all too quickly claimed to be reforms of the West. The end of communism was put in the Western pocket. And I think we have to recognize that the West have really not lived up to their side of the bargain in the sense that it's been a foreign policy for the rich. It's been a world structure in the last 30 years in which the rich have become richer and the poor have become poor. And just to put it frankly on the table, the white world has become richer and the black world has become poorer and more vulnerable. So I think that that is in the context of that, in the context of that negotiation uh, between the, uh, the West and, uh, and the Soviet Union, we lost our footing. And we lost our footing of what we are as a people, our understanding of where we are. So to return to the idea of uh, what's to be done. And this puts a lot of pressure on Mike and on you, Fundis. Firstly, get organized. Don't rely on the international relations think tanks to help you understand this world. Because that's not going to help you at all, because they are simply repeating the shibboleths, the understandings of an unexamined and uncritical understanding of the world. We have to talk about the deep structures of the world, not the superficial bits. Use the constitution as a shield in this, in this uh, matter. I think it's really important that we go back and examine again the Al-Bashir case. The Al-Bashir case, which was a clear victory, uh, although Al-Bashir got away, it was a clear victory for the constitution being the supreme uh, uh, document in the country, the supreme authority. Pool interests among NGOs, the kind of thing I was talking about earlier, Mike. I mean, I'm pretty much uh, inspired by the idea that Nicole Fritz has become the director of the Helen Sussman Foundation. I mean, if there's one international lawyer who's been an activist in this country, it's Nicole Fritz. 
who's organized and spoken about uh, international law as a way to protect ourselves. Then, second last thing, draw closer to the Human Rights Commission. I mean, what I've never understood is that why people who are concerned with global human rights have never uh, made supplications to the Human Rights Commission, even probably taken Human Rights Commissioners out for a cup of tea and had a talk about what should be done about the Dalai Lama or this. I mean, human rights do not stop at borders, which is precisely why we're having this conversation. Human rights stop, uh, have no uh, passports. So I think that somehow we've got to draw the human rights into a conversation between us. And then finally, and most difficultly, ask Dirka some uncomfortable questions. Why don't we know how deeply the South African military, uh, how many people and how deeply the South African military is training in Russia? Um, there are students I know who were my students who have now have been training with the Russian army from what I can understanding or studying with the Russian army for years. Why don't we know this? Why don't we understand how the appointment of ambassadors are made uh, inside the country? Uh, it seems to me that there's a panoply of questions that we should be asking in a really fundamental way that don't be asked because everybody is polite and diplomatic and uh, uh, uses the correct spoon when they sit down to drink soup at the ambassador's house. So there you are, 20 minutes. I hope I've been a little provocative. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Yes, I think you have been quite provocative. Can I just ask you to go back to something you said right at the beginning about the English language not being a language which gives space for, for, for discussion around peace and negotiations in a context like that. What did you mean with that? You see, I think the English language is a very hierarchical language. It tells jokes, if you think about it. It tells jokes in a hierarchical fashion. You always mainly tell jokes downwards. You tell jokes about others. You, you communicate even in its hard end or in its soft end about other people. Uh, so I think that we have to explore the fact and of course, this is not easy. None of this is easy. None of this is easy. Uh, we have to kind of liberate ourselves from English. And I always go back to Wittgenstein, the Austrian Cambridge uh, philosopher who said the limits of our language, the limits of our knowledge are the limits of our language. And I don't think that 200, 300 years of speaking English and English becoming the language of diplomacy have actually helped us out of this hole. If you want to understand how the British and the English speak about the rest of the world, go to Christopher Steele's presentation that he made at the Oxford Union recently. I mean, this is racist stuff. It's racist stuff discussed in a certain hierarchical way. Assumptions of yourself as the center your own interests are always the best interests. They matter the most. This is not easy, Mike. But, you know, as we know, changing the world is not an easy task. Well, 
Thank you. Uh, we can certainly come back to to that aspect and also perhaps to later on to some of the um, also poorly understood sort of psychosocial aspects of this. There was an article, I think, on the Guardian website recently about how Russia sees this, if Russia is something which... which yeah, of course. ...package as one thing. Um, but it is how the Russian establishment, I suppose, sees what's going on. It's very different from the way we see it. But let me ask Edwin to... Um, give us his perspective and, and the perspective of the uh, Desmond Malaya Tutu Foundation, and, and in particular to uh, take us through the statement that the foundation put out. Edmund, you just need to unmute yourself. Thank you, Mike, and um, thank you also, Professor Peter Vale. Um, profound as always, um, and I found your, your comments about um, hypocrisy, organized hypocrisy, <laughs> quite, quite insightful. Thank you for that. Um, also, thank you to the, to the Catholic uh, Parliamentary Liaison Office for this invitation for the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation to cooperate um, and to be in partnership with you today. We, we enjoy this kind of partnerships. Um, I saw both Father Peter John Pearson and Archbishop uh, Brislin at the Archer's funeral um, on the 1st of January. And um, thank you to both of them for being present there. Um, but I said to them, I said, as much as the arch is also is your arch, Pope Francis is also our Pope. You know, uh, we share we share things across across denominational lines. So it's really good to uh, to cooperate with um, with the CPLO today. I want to start uh, by actually reading the statement that we. Um, released on the 24th of February, the day that Russia invaded Ukraine, um, because I think it's important that, that we all just hear what, what the foundation said on the day. So I'm reading the whole statement. The Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation has noted with utter condemnation Russia's decision to invade its neighbor Ukraine. Putin's actions hark back to the colonialism and imperialism of the last centuries. The right of national self-determination is sacrosanct. As a result of these actions, there will be lives lost, futures shattered, and families torn apart. We urge peaceful dialogue among adversaries and the pre prevention of devastating bloodshed. This military invasion comes after months of tension between the two nations, all attempts to call for diplomacy appear to have failed. According to news reports, the Russian military fired airstrikes into Ukraine in the early hours of this morning, resulting in catastrophic casualties. Uh, the Desmond and Leia Tutu Legacy Foundation is deeply outraged that this act of aggression from Russia is having on the cost of human life. Images showed scores of residents desperately fleeing uh, major cities in the search of safety. And then we say, we call on the South African government to join Ghana and Kenya in condemning Russia's act of war. This is no time to sit on the fence. The act of war and violence need to be condemned in the strongest possible terms. We further call on the African Union, BRICS, Economic Bloc, and all other countries to consider the strongest possible sanctions on Putin's regime. We call on all countries to impose stronger economic sanctions on Russia, 
so they will feel the full brunt of their violent action. Putin's act of aggression severely undermines Ukraine's sovereignty and is a devastating blow to world peace, a breach of international law, and a violation of human rights. We urge the international we urge international support and solidarity with Ukraine. As Archbishop Tutu said on, on April um, the 7th of April 2003 on the issue of war, peace, and security, he said, We in South Africa have learned that true security cannot be gained from the barrel of a gun. These words need to be heeded in no uncertain terms. Now, since we put out the statement, we noted that our government through Minister Pandor first condemned the invasion and then seemed to backtrack and try to be neutral. The response by the South African government has therefore, in our view, been very weak. They have so far refused to consistently condemn Russia for its actions and have instead called for a mediation process. But in the words of the arch, if an elephant, or in this case a bear, stands on the tail of a mouse and you say that you're neutral, the mouse will not particularly appreciate your neutrality. Neutrality always favors the powerful and the oppressive. We are told that our president had a phone call with President Putin, but not with the president of Ukraine. So calling for mediation is not a bad thing, but they must firstly condemn uh, Russia for its actions and be even-handed and consistent. So why would it, would it have been necessary for, um, for the Arch to, um, to say this to a government who did not particularly appreciate neutrality against um, apartheid in South Africa? We did not appreciate, um, and I'm saying we as activists against apartheid, did not appreciate the constructive engagement of Ronald Reagan, or the positions of Thatcher and Cole in the mid-1980s. So why would we now suddenly think that neutrality in the face of clear violation has any value? It was in fact then Senator Joe Biden, who was one of the strongest voices condemning Reagan's neutrality and getting his veto uh, overturned. The stance of neutrality apparently has as its aim um, the desire to negotiate and mediate. Again, the arch would have reminded us that we need to learn from history. In fact, he once said that we learn from history that we do not learn from history. But if we were to take our own history seriously, we will know that negotiations only came after struggles. So negotiations only came after struggle and after sanctions were implemented uh, against the apartheid regime. In other words, do not jump to Easter and try to ignore Good Friday. Many of our politicians across all parties have tried to do this, and we should simply not let them get away with it, and definitely not during Lent. Think about this. There are now three, close to three million Ukrainian ref refugees, and about half of these are children. Do we think that these children fleeing will appreciate our, our neutrality? We, we really doubt it. Innocent people have been killed. Young mothers and children have been seen being held up in bunkers, these are awful images of inhumanity that we are witnessing at this time. The one thing we must therefore do at this time is also call for consistency and equality. While what is going on in Ukraine is terrible, it is interesting to see how this war gets, tre gets treated compared to other wars across the globe. Refugees from Africa or the Middle East are not treated as kindly compared to those from Europe. We should be against all wars, whether it be Libya, Palestine, Sudan, Yemen, as the arch would have, would have been. 
Can you imagine the seeds of hatred being planted in the hearts of so many people and what will happen when this takes root? We must avoid this at all costs as Russian and Ukrainians are really sisters and brothers, one family. We must work towards building a new friendship between Russians and Ukrainians and affirm the humanity of them all. Uh, the arch uh, famously said, those who ravage our humanity dehumanize themselves in the process. So we must be careful of this. This war can still escalate and therefore it has to be stopped immediately. With both sides now effectively bringing in people from other countries, this will soon be a world war, even if we do not call, uh, even if we um, do not call it that. If we do not stop it, this war could escalate to chemical weapons being used as well as nuclear um, weapons being used. So far, thousands of lives have been lost and we can't afford to lose any more and neither should we allow it. For these and many other reasons, this war must be stopped. It has been heartening, however, to see how different sports codes have re reacted and prevented Russian teams from participating in, in those sport codes. Uh, this happened against apartheid South Africa, and of course should have happened a long time ago against a country such as Israel, whom we regard as an apartheid state. Activists have been calling for FIFA and UEFA to, for example, ban Israel, but it has been falling on deaf ears. But now that it's happening against Russia, we can hopefully learn lessons from it and apply it in other contexts when necessary. It has also been heartening to see ordinary Russian people standing up against this war. Thousands have been arrested in anti-war protests, but we need to see tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands out in the streets to, to, for these protests to be effective. We must encourage the Russian people to stand up against this war. It is their future and the future of their children and their country that is at stake as well. But what has been sad, of course, to see is the position taken by the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church in support of this war. But once again, 200 Russian Orthodox clergy have taken a stand against the war and we salute them and will pray for them. Russia is being a bully and is being allowed to be a bully. Of course, it has taken lessons from other bullies who invaded Iraq and Gaza and Libya. We must, of course, um, at this time be mindful of just how many conflicts the West has, in, has initiated in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. We must be even-handed and consistent and condemn all bullying and all attempts by global players to intentionally break down our, our global rule of law architecture. The call for sanction sanctions against Russia can be effective. We only have to look at our own history as to how sanctions can work to, to campaign for sanctions against the apartheid regime. And it helped to bring an end to the oppressive government here. There was also no doubt in the mind of the arts that Bush and Blair, for example, uh, had to appear before the International Criminal Court. While they, do not appear, while they do not appear before the ICC for lying to the public about weapons of mass destruction, we can hardly expect the ICC to now charge Putin for what the, the Russian army under his command is doing. And this is uh, to, to underline uh, Professor Vale's point about organized hypocrisy. Um, it is therefore urgent that the ICC be strengthened and respected by all, including the USA, and be allowed to do its work without fear or favor. When the Iraq war happened, the Arch led a civil society delegation 
to the United Nations, to Kofi Annan, who was then the UN General Secretary. And um, the two of them sat across a table and he, he said to Kofi Annan that he was there to represent the United Nations of all the people standing against the wall. So here is a lesson for us. It is clear that our government is probably never going to do what is right and just. But that value, that special emanation for justice for all, lies in the heart of civil society, in the hearts of peoples across the world. We, the people, must hold our governments accountable to ensure that there's a just and accountable global architecture. If that was in place, this war would probably not have happened. But now that the war has happened, what should happen next? Firstly, a ceasefire must be declared and Russia must withdraw from Ukraine. If we allow this to continue to happen, we should not be surprised if it happens to other nations tomorrow. So Russia must respect Ukraine's sovereignty and get out of Ukraine. Secondly, the UN must take the lead in both negotiations and peacekeeping operations. Pope Francis has made the Vatican available for such negotiations. Hopefully they can make use of this offer. But wherever this happens, it must happen with urgency, with the aim to restore Ukraine as a sovereign state. Finally, and just to bring things home, this war in Ukraine will have a negative effect on the poorest of the poor in South Africa. Fuel prices will steadily increase, which will mean, mean the price of food will go up. This is devastating as South Africa is already the most unequal country in the world. The war against fellow Africans in our country will probably heighten, but it must also be condemned and must stop. These two are our sisters and our brothers. Let us learn from what is happening in, U in Ukraine at the moment and deal with the challenges in a comprehensive and consistent manner. Thank you. Thank you very much, Edwin. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed via our website. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za.